Hello, all, and welcome to the Goddess Project podcast. This is our very first episode, my very first episode. In fact, my very first time doing my own podcast. Um, so I hope that you'll bear with me as I will try and do it without any editing. I don't know if that's idealistic or some editing. Um, so I'm just going to try and like um, stay as informal and as natural as possible. And um, hopefully you'll be entertained. Um, in this podcast, we're going to talk about Lilith. Uh, but this podcast is going to be part of a series of goddesses. So what I would like to do is I will have different series, um, goddesses, monsters, witches, um, whatever I come across that's really exciting or I'm really excited about and I want to share with you guys. Um, and so I'm beginning with the goddess series because I think it's the most fitting to begin with, uh, but we will um, dive into every possible um platform or popular culture or uh, myth or even uh, sort of global geographical stories from across the world that are interconnected. Um, and we will try to have some fun um, digging in through material around the goddess that has not maybe been addressed in the way that at least I think it should be addressed. Let's be fair. <clears throat> um, Lilith is, for example, not a story that is unknown, but I think it's a story that's buried under other stories. Um, and so I thought it'd be important to start with her uh, because she really straddles <clears throat> that, um, that duality between goddess, beautiful goddess. Um, she can be kind and given at times. It depends on which culture we're talking about in which time period. And then she is also perceived, particularly under patriarchy, as you will not be surprised, as an evil vampiric succubi, you know? So I thought that she really straddles the, um, those, that duality and she does it really, really well. So I thought it should be great to start with. Um, and then, for example, for future, for the, our next few podcasts, I would like to do uh, perhaps Demeter and Persephone, because I think that's also another relationship that is not often discussed in detail. Um, oh my goodness, there's so many goddesses that I want to start with. Um, but, and then maybe do Artemis as well, as, as some of you know, who follow me on Instagram. Uh, Artemis is my boo um, and really my obsession. So um, I don't want to bombard you every week with Artemis things, but you know, we will refer to her probably repeatedly. Um, so that being said, um, oh, I should also maybe tell you something about myself, although I will put up a little bio video on Patreon. Uh, so if you want to um, become a member of my Patreon, um, there'll be a link at the end uh, of this video. And then there'll also, there's a link um, in my bio and, and Instagram and in YouTube and everywhere. Um, but I wanted to tell you a little bit about myself just before we begin, because we don't yet know each other. So my name is Carla Ionescu and my doctorate is in ancient history. My PhD is in the goddess Artemis, uh, particularly uh, the Greek and Ephesian version uh, I focus my PhD mostly on the Ephesian version. Um, and there's lots to say about the Ephesian version of, of Artemis, which we, I think we will talk about uh, at some point as well. Um, <clears throat> I teach all across um, Ontario at different colleges and universities. Um, but this podcast is really born out of my love to discuss not just goddesses, but myth and legends in an informal manner, in a way that um, you don't have to have done some kind of reading. Uh, you don't have to look anything up. Um, we're just going to talk about it. And yes, of course, I'm going to bring you some academic stuff because I am an academic, uh, but uh, it's not a test. It's, there's no pressure. I hope that if you're driving or just chilling or whatever, just watching this, uh, you're just relaxing and having fun because that's really the goal. 
um, in my professional life, you know, I have, I have to lecture in a more formal manner. Although I, if you ask my students, they'd say I'm a pretty informal teacher. Um, so I, I just wanted to do something that's fun and uh, hopefully we will grow together into a more and more fun podcast format. Um, I'm not really as familiar with uh, podcasting, but hopefully um, I will be um, after all of these. So that's a little bit about me. Um, and like I said, um, I'm going to do a little bio video uh, so that we don't spend hours here talking about me because uh, that, that could take a while. Uh, might not be a fun time, but it could take a while. <laughs> So, uh, and so I thought we would talk, uh, we would dive into, into Lilith and, um, and we get to talk about how awesome she is. Yeah. So for those of you who are um, watching this um, on YouTube, um, I'm going to have a slideshow. <laughs> so you'll have to uh, forgive me. Uh, for a second as I pop up the slideshow. Okay, so this is what we would call, uh, ah, here we go. My apologies. So um, if you are listening to me and that was just a weird, awkward pause, sorry about that. Um, okay, so let's get started. I'm just trying to figure out how to make um, some of the slides that I have um, fun to watch as well. Uh, but you don't need the slides to listen to this. We're going to talk about all of the things that Lilith is, um, even without the slides. So no worries at all. Uh, so the title of this episode is Lilith No Means No, because I think that Lilith is one of the first women to literally say no. Yeah. And she says no to Adam. So we're going to talk about Adam, uh, Adam, so much to say uh, about God's first creation of man. Um, but um, she is one, she is the first woman to say no. She is also the first woman to um, call out uh, the Judeo-Christian God by his own name as a threat. So we're going to talk about that and what's in a name, you know, the importance of a name, particularly God names. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit about that as well. So she, so Lilith is a really interesting figure because she is such an ancient figure, but also in many ways, such a modern woman, or one could argue that actually women haven't changed that much um, since, you know, 3000 years ago, 4,000 years ago, and, and one could argue since forever, but our development of how women should behave particularly under patriarchy but even just the societal norms has changed um and so one of the cool things about doing this podcast is that we can reach back in time and actually connect to ancient women in this case a, a goddess figure but connect to them in a way that feels really personal today because we can relate and to me, as a historian, that's so fascinating that we can relate to stories about women that are 4,000 years old, 3,000 years old, 1,000 years old, et cetera. Um, it's fascinating. I think we take that a bit for granted, you know, but it's fascinating that we can connect to those figures and that we experience a lot of their frustration or issues even today. So... I wanted to read to you what uh, Raphael Patai, who is a scholar who wrote on Lilith extensively, um, but um, from a masculine perspective, <laughs> I'm trying to be respectful to Mr. Patai. Um, I, I think that he did really wonderful work. Um, and I think anyone would think that in the scholarly world, but he kind of stuck her in the she-demon um, um, category. So he really didn't give her too much credit. And in his writing, he doesn't really acknowledge that being a bad girl or a bad woman or a she demon is actually empowering for women. So he writes, uh, no she demon so has ever achieved as fantastic a career as Lilith. Okay, good. Who started out from the lowliest of origins was a failure as Adam's intended wife. Um, I'd like to object, but for later. 
became the paramour of lascivious spirits. Hmm. So that just sounded like she had a really great time. Rose to be the bride of Samael, the demon king. So we're going to talk about Samael a little bit. And ruled as the queen of Zernagod and Shebo. And finally ended up as the consort of God himself. So in that, I want to start with that because that alone tells us everything about Lilith. You know, not only uh, did she start, as we'll see, as uh, from dust or from nothing, um, and then sort of brushed off Adam, but then she became uh, a woman of promiscuity and enjoying sexuality. Then she became the bride of the demon king, and then she ruled as a queen and ended up the consort of God. Um, I'm not sure that many of you have heard that version um, of Lilith. And then we're going to look at what happens to her in modernity, what happens to her, you know, recently. Um, and so quite, I think, an intriguing figure that maybe doesn't um, get the, um, the props, like we used to say, that she deserves. Now, Jessica Mason, uh, who writes on popular culture and the history of Lilith, she gives her a lot more credit. She says, you know, Lilith chose liberation over Eden and refused to submit to a man in a way that cost her too much. She's a figure that feminists rightly honor now, thank you, because she represents the power of choice and refusing to be ashamed of simply wanting to be the person she is. So I want you to consider the difference between Raphael Patai's statement about the she-demon and all of the things that she became and Jessica Mason's statement that embraces um, that aspect of femininity, which is you can be a woman and have all of these other complex aspects of yourself. Um, and that successful, powerful women are not always she demons. Yeah? So I thought that that was really interesting as um, an introduction to kind of set the tone for how interesting Lilith is as a figure and, and how little she really um, gets that recognition uh, in popular culture. Towards the end of this podcast, I'm going to mention a few TV shows in popular culture in which she's appeared recently. And she really um, is very one-dimensional um, in the imagination of Hollywood. And so again, um, Lilith is a figure that is you know, categorized. Yeah. Let's start with her background, okay? Um, so I posted a picture on my Instagram um, of this Queen of Night relief, uh, which is um, the first depiction that scholars agree on um, of Lilith or a figure that could embody Lilith. Um, and it was made in about 2400 BCE. So that makes it almost, you know, 4,500 years old or 5,000 years old. Um, and the early, that's the earliest mention of a name that is similar to Lilith, and it's found in the Sumerian king list. Um, and it talks about um, how the father of Gilgamesh, who's an epic hero, uh, was a Lilu demon. Um, so one of the four demons belonging to the vampire or incubi class. So this is the first time that we see the, the Lilith name, uh, even though it is associated with a man, uh, which is Gilgamesh's father. But there were different different kinds of Lilithes or Lilies. Um, and uh, most of them visited men by night and then bore them ghostly children. Okay. Um, and so sometimes they were thought of as storm demons, right? Uh, often they were thought as uh, night demons. Interestingly, though, this relief of uh, Lilith has the epithet, the beautiful maiden. So again, here we see um, the danger of beauty and particularly how in society, patriarchal society, beautiful women are seen as dangerous, okay? Because men feel like they can't be, they can't control themselves around beautiful women. And so they, they label them as manipulative, uh, tempting, seductive, as, as we'll see, this is something that comes up for Lilith over and over and over again, that there is something dangerous, inherently dangerous to men uh, in beautiful women. And really the danger there is that men can't seem to control themselves um, around women, 
Okay. Um, and so here Lilith is depicted as slender, well-shaped, beautiful, nude. Okay. She has wings and owl feet. Uh, she stands on two reclining lions. So this is a symbol of power. When you're, so lions are a symbol of power and royalty. She's standing on two reclining lions, uh, which are turned away from each other. And on each side of the lions, there's two owl. There's not one owl. So two owls in the relief. Um, and owls have always represented night, but especially wisdom. And we'll see owls associated with goddesses like Athena um, and even in Winnie the Pooh, for example, uh, the owl was the teacher, you know, the, the, the figure of the teacher, the figure of the knowledge, um, that he who kept knowledge um, in Winnie the Pooh. And that really has to do with owls as symbols uh, um, of all knowingness, because owls do one thing that other animals don't do is they can turn their heads 360. Yeah. So there's this sort of all-seeing, all-knowing association with the owls um, and a very long association, a very long symbolic association. And owls are then connected uh, to wisdom. And here we have owls connected to Lilith. Therefore, we can assume that Lilith is wise, powerful. She can fly. So there's something divine about her. She wears a cap on her head embellished by several pairs of horns. Horns, again, are a symbol of power. Um, and she holds in her hand, she holds a ring and rod combination. So this, this relief of um, Lilith is, an, a, is, an, is a collection of these massive symbolic aspects that really show us visually how powerful uh, she was thought to be. Um, so I think it's important that we consider not just the interpretation of later scholars of Lilith as this vampire succubi, but the original early depiction of her as um, a figure that is encompasses so many different aspects of power and beauty. Now, I'm going to talk a lot about Lilith in the Bible, or Lilith and Adam, or Lilith in, in history, but I wanted to make sure that um, we that you guys know that we're talking about the Talmudic Lilith. Okay. So um, there's actually uh, only one instant in Isaiah where Lilith is mentioned. Um, and yeah, only one instance when she's mentioned. In Isaiah 34, 14, um, he, he mentions, he's describing Yahweh's day of vengeance when the land will be turned into desolate wilderness. And he says, the wildcat shall meet with the jackals and the satyr shall cry to his fellow. Yeah, Lilith shall repose there and find her a place to rest. So that is the only mention in the canonized Hebrew Bible and also the Christian Bible uh, where Lilith shows up, where her name literally shows up. But there's a lot of implication from the Talmudic Lilith. Now, uh, the Talmudic Lilith comes from the time of the Talmudic um, development, uh, which is, depending on the dates, um, between 700 to 500 CE, so modern era. So about, you know, 1500 years ago, let's say. So it's a development that comes as an aside to what is the Hebrew Bible or what Christians call the Old Testament. Um, however, when we look at Adam and, and Lilith, we're going to look at Genesis 1, uh, which um, all the Abrahamic texts have. And the implication is that Lilith is unnamed there, um, that she is the unnamed. Okay, so we're going to look at, um, at how that person, that woman, that creation of woman uh, becomes uh, identified as Lilith um, and how then that story picks up speed and becomes this, um, this sort of massive figure um, of rebellion. So if you're not familiar with Genesis 1, uh, that's okay. You don't have to be. Um, in the story of Genesis 1, which fits into all the Abrahamic faiths, is sort of the beginning of all the Abrahamic faiths, God creates the world and everything in it in seven days. Well, six days, and then he rests on the seventh. 
but before, uh, sorry, yes. And so on the sixth day, um, he also creates uh, mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Okay. So and then that stops there and says, God's blessed them and says to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth, et cetera, et cetera. Um, everything here um, is yours to enjoy, et cetera. God says, okay, this is all good. And then he rests. Um, and then in Genesis 2, we see another story that is sort of the beginning uh, where God creates Adam and Eve. Okay. So traditionally, these are seen as two separate stories. No, let me rephrase that. <laughs> Traditionally, in monotheistic faith, particularly in the Christian faith, these are seen as the same story. So the first story is God just says, oh, I'm creating male and female. And the second story, Genesis 2, where he's, do, he's working on Adam and Eve, it's a more of a detailed explanation, okay? And that's probably what you're all familiar with, and that's the way we're all taught, and etc. But in the ancient world, when they put together the Hebrew Bible, and just like every other uh, book that is canonized, they had collected numerous stories um, from, uh, especially from uh, when the Hebrews were in Babylonian exile, and then they returned. So um, academically speaking, there is a lot of support that these two stories, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, are separate stories, Okay. So if they're separate stories, then that means that Genesis 1, where God creates male and a man and a woman, is a separate story than Adam and Eve, okay? And this is where Lilith comes in, okay? So the idea is that Lilith is this first female that he created with the male. So that in Genesis 1, 26 to 31, if you want to look it up, um, he, that God created Adam and Lilith. But because they created them, he created them at the same time and from the same materials that these two individuals are equals, as opposed to later when he creates Adam and then when Adam is there and, he, and Adam is created and then Eve is made out of Adam's rib. So that Eve becomes a helper or um, is born out of Adam, which is a little silly considering, you know, men can't give birth, but. Anyway, that's a story for another day. Um, but so there's a there's a difference here um, that allows the story of Lilith then to uh, make her and present her as more independent. Okay, um, and so the Talmudic, the midrash, the midrashim of the story of Lilith, which is sort of a side side notes or additional notes to uh, the Hebrew Bible tells us that actually Adam and Lilith could not get along, <laughs> that they did not like each other at all. They could find no happiness together and no understanding. So as equals, they could find no understanding, according uh, to this. Um, and when Adam wished to lie with her or have sex with her, uh, she did not want to lie beneath him. So basically... Lilith was not a fan of the missionary position, okay? And, and she would say to Adam, why should I lie beneath you when I am your equal since both of us were created from dust, okay? And so Adam then goes to God and says, listen, like this woman that you made with me is just not working out. She won't lie beneath me. She only wants to get on top. That's too domineering for me. I don't like it. You know, Adam is a real peach um, in the story, of creation. Um, we haven't even gotten to him throwing Eve under the bus, but we'll see. Um, so God goes to Lilith and says, listen, you got to listen to Adam. And I'm paraphrasing God here. I, I know he's a bit whiny and he doesn't want you to get on top, but you know, humor him. Right. And she says, no, I refuse to. Um, and when God tries to, um, when Adam tries to overpower her, so in a sense, push her into having sex in the missionary position, which is in this day and age assault, but anyway, um, she utters the magic name of God, okay, um, which allowed her to free herself from Adam, fly away to the Red, Red Sea, and according to this, live with demons. <laughs> True freedom, right? Right. 
Um, so I want to take that. I want to take that apart a little bit uh, because the, she does a few things there. Number one, she utters the magic name of God. So the only other person that famously uses the, the, the name of an all-powerful God, because Yahweh, of course, is an all-powerful divinity, is the goddess Isis. When the goddess, uh, when Seth kills her consort, Osiris, and then distributes his body, you know, cuts up his body and spreads it out everywhere. Uh, Isis goes to Ra, who I would argue is an equivalent of Yahweh for the Egyptians, and says, you got to tell me where Osiris's body parts are. I want to put them back together, etc. And Ra says, no, no, I don't want to get involved. And Isis utters or threatens to utter his real name, which gives her power over, um, over Ra. And so Ra goes, okay, fine, fine. Don't say my name. <laughs> don't say my name. Um, I will tell you where he is. And she goes and finds Osiris. And um, actually, Isis is a great goddess to add to our list of goddesses because what she does with Osiris's body is uh, fun and creepy and, and, and cool. Maybe we'll add that to our list of goddesses. Um, so in the same way, Lilith utters the name of God or Yahweh, you know, and his true name, his magic name, that's just a, you know, but his true name, his secret name, and that gives her freedom to escape. And then she escapes to the Red Sea, which is ironic because, you know, later on, that's, that's the, the, the place where the Israelites flee from Egypt. And of course, God opens up the Red Sea and they can cross across it. So um, very amazing, very interesting that she flees to the Red Sea. Uh, and that this at that time was a place of ill repute, full of demons, so that she finds her freedom among the demons, rather than the very figure that God has created from scratch. You know, so there's a lot of implications here number one god's creation uh from scratch and perhaps dare i say this don't let lightning strike me uh but if god creates adam in his own image and adam is unsatisfactory that says that implies something right about um the god of uh the old testament or the hebrew bible uh certainly he's uh not unfathomable so and the fact that she knows his secret name, something that, of course, Adam doesn't know, uh, is also really fascinating as well. And then, of course, she uses it in self-defense. So there's, there's some really interesting, it's almost as though Lilith is an equal to God here. It's really fascinating, really, really fascinating. And so uh, when we think about the birth of Lilith or how she was created, that is one of the stories is that she was created... Um, out of dust or dirt or earth in the same way that Adam was created. And that um, also in the image of God, which is interesting because again, that implies that the divine or Yahweh has sort of this du duplicate, at least duplicate genders, perhaps more than one, more than two genders, but certainly these two genders. Um, there are also other stories that I think fit better for Lilith's birth. Um, you know, one of my favorite one is um, outside of her being fashioned for Adam and, and, and made out of uh, dirt, uh, is that she emerged spontaneously, either out of the great supernal abyss yeah, or out of the power of God, right? Chiefly manifested as the power of stern judgment and pan punishment. So there around the story of Lilith and perhaps something that predates the story of um, Adam and Eve uh, and Adam and Lilith um, is this idea that actually Lilith was a divine being on her own, that she, she came out of nothing, out of the great abyss or out of the great power of God. And of course, God was the great abyss before he created the world. Um, so in many ways, she is his equal. Uh, and perhaps that's why she knows his secret name. Um, the other really interesting um, aspects of her birth um, is that she was uh, born in the shape of an androgynous figure, so a figure with no gender, that had two faces. Um, so this actually um, is a story that um, in the Midrash and in, in, in the Talmud is depicted as God trying to create the ultimate being. And that this being is, is, is made of two 
genders or androgynous figure. It has two faces. But the problem with this was that, of course, this individual couldn't survive or couldn't, um, because of the two faces and the two poles in opposite directions, couldn't um, survive as one being, in, in essence. Um, here for Lilith, the other side of her, the, the second face of this androgynous figure is, of course, Samael. Now, I don't know if you guys have ever heard of Samael. Uh, one of my favorite films of all time is Hellboy. Uh, one of my favorite characters of all time is Hellboy. Um, and in one of the films, I can't remember, I think it's maybe Hellboy 2, um, the figure of Samael is resurrected. Um, and Hellboy has to fight Samael and, you know, they're uh, good and evil or evil and not so evil <laughs> battle ensues. Anyways, the point is that Samael has also made it into popular culture and that he is the, um, the king of um, the demons. So not the same thing as sort of Lucifer, satanic uh, culture or tradition, uh, but a king of demons, right? A king of evil. And of course, Lilith then, if she's born with him in that same body or created in that body that has two faces, is the queen of evil or the queen of um, the dominion of demons. So you can see these interconnections. You can see that um, Lilith, if we believe the story of Adam and, and, and Lilith, she goes to live among the demons and, and becomes their queen. Or if we believe the story that God creates his androgynous figure at, at the beginning and he tries to, to make this figure that embodies everything, but that didn't work out too well, then again, she's born as sort of the queen um, of the demons and, and associated with the king of the demons. So either way, um, she she gets a bit of a of a rough um, beginning um, in the Talmudic tradition. Of course, another um, aspect of this is that she is born alongside the luminaries. Okay, so the luminaries are really fascinating figures. They're almost angelic figures. Um, and they come from this concept of the first light, which was the light of mercy, appeared on the first day of creation when God said, let, let, let there be light. And then when this light became hidden, holiness or sacredness became surrounded by a husk of evil. Okay. And that that husk of evil was created around the brain. And that that husk in turn spread out into another husk. And this was none other than Lilith. So let me take that apart for you a little bit. So at the beginning, when, God, when there was nothing, the first thing that God created was light. And in this light, there is an association with the brain or the mind. Because in Genesis, God creates with his thoughts, okay? Which is, of course, unnatural, <laughs> right? Uh, because the only way that anything on earth creates uh, living things is through birthing. And of course, most mammals um, and other animals create through female birthing. But in the story of Genesis, of this God that is in many ways without gender, so I do want to say that, but often we refer to him as a him, so we gendered him, uh, creates with thoughts, so I want you to think about how revolutionary this is because men don't create through their bodies, they create through their mind. And throughout Greek thought and ancient thought, the idea of creating with your mind um, is higher than or became more valuable than creating with your body, okay? So that's sort of what put men on a pedestal because they were thinking things, rational things. They were mathematical. Uh, you know, they had these thoughts. And so these thoughts became realities. And oh my God, it's such genius. Well, females tended to create organically with their bodies. And, and, and this concept was like, well, all females can create with their bodies. Like what's the magic in that? There's nothing genius in that. Um, so there's the, this is the beginning of that divide between the two aspects. And so God, Yahweh, creates with his mind. He creates with his thoughts. So he says, and his words, actually, right? So words, language, power. So he says, let there be light. And suddenly there's light. There's no birthing involved. Um, even when he creates Adam and Eve, there's no birthing involved. Uh, even when he creates Eve out of Adam's rib, there's no birthing involved. This is a solely male endeavor, okay? So he makes something 
with his hands uh, when he makes Adam and Lilith, for example, out of dirt and dust. And then he makes Eve with his hands when he makes her, puts her together almost like a like a toy, like one of those things you get in those Kindler eggs, right? You put them together uh, and you make something. Um, so this is a very masculine way of birthing the world, of being in the world, um, of ha- adding value to the world, okay? So, sorry, <laughs> I got totally sidetracked there, sorry. There's a lot to say, sorry. But I just want you to think about this idea that the concept of light and and thinking and thoughts and brain and intelligence and creating with light is part of this luminary creation. And then the husk that is around the brain, right, becomes um, this um, something that closes in the light, something that holds in the light. And Lilith is seen as, as a part of that. In part, she comes out of the creation of light, but she is actually the darkness that folds over the light. So this is a bit more like sort of fantastical of a creation myth for Lilith, but it's really fascinating because again, it's doing that thing where it's saying, well, God creates light and thoughts and, and, and rationality and beautiful things. And then the organic thing, the husk, the brain, the, the skull that encompasses the brain or the light is uh, somehow evil or not enough or secondary. So again, it's adding this idea that everything that comes from the organic body is not as celestial or sacred as what comes from the mind. So Lilith has a lot of, uh, a lot, a lot of roots. And again, this is not a class. So you don't have to remember everything. I just want you to, I hope you're just, you know, kind of listening to me and going, holy shit, that's a lot. Yeah. Uh, because it is, it is a lot. And that's why I find her so fascinating. Um, and, and, and believe me when I tell you that this podcast is like maybe a one tenth out of all the information that I have planned to post for you guys, but I don't want this to take forever. So I just want to give you sort of the, um, the highlight reel. Yeah um before we get to the modern world so uh let's talk just briefly about the cherubim and lilith yeah so lilith um cherubims are these little um angels little cupids um if you're watching this on youtube you can see my slide of the little little pudgy cute angels that michelangelo has uh depicted um and the story goes that when lilith is kicked out or leaves um eden she wants to still be a part um, of the cherubim, right? Sorry, she wants to still be a part um, of, uh, not God, but of the mysterious ways and the places that she was uh, living with before. And she wants some male companionship, yeah? So she began to fly about and then descended and she went up again until she reached the cherubim, these little pudgy cute cupids, um, who were surround who surrounded God's throne. And because they had faces like little boys, she, you know, she, she felt attached to them. Okay. Uh, so there's nothing sexual about it, but she, there's actually something more, maybe more maternal about it. Uh, but she wanted some kind of male companionship and because she couldn't find any with Adam. And then she had a hard time uh, sort of uh, finding her roots even with Samael, she became attached to these little cherubims. But God did not want her to be attached to these little small face boys. So he threw her back um, uh, to descend back on the earth. Um, and he sort of left her there for a while. Yeah. She remained in the depths of the sea and the earth. Uh, and then at some point, Later on, after Adam and Eve are kicked out of Eden and they're out on their own, uh, then God has decided to lift her back up, yeah, to bring her back up. And she then obtains the power over all these little children, small faces, small faces, boys of mankind who deserve to be punished because of the sins of their fathers. So then what happens is she roams all over the world, okay? then approaches and observes the cherubim watching over the gates. And then she sits next to the flame and is allowed to sit next to the flame um, and watch these little boys with faces. Yeah. Um, And then for some reason, God sends her back out 
to punish those who are bad. So she has a weird relationship with um, the cherubim. Two interesting things about it, though, is that these cherubims are actually um, what later becomes Cupid, what we later call Cupid, uh, which is actually a trickster figure in Greek mythology. So they also kind of stand, you know, now, now we look at them and they're super cute and they're super heavenly and we think, oh my God, so adorable. But in the old days, like Cupid was a troublemaker and he liked to start trouble, particularly making people fall in love with each other who shouldn't be. And so what's interesting is that God uh, first pushes her away from these little angels and then says, fine, okay, you can um, not just watch over them, but now it's become your job to punish any boys or men that are bad, which is really interesting. The other aspect that's really interesting is that she sits near the flame and watches the cherubim when she's not out punishing people. And again, there's this um, association of the flame with, for example, uh, God, when he shows up to Moses as a burning bush, as a flame, right? That's burning the, so that there's, again, something sacred about Lilith. There's, she has some kind of connection to the creator. Yeah? And the cherubim are really interesting because they, they, they're actually the epitome of like the cute, adorable, pudgy uh, little angels or, or kids or divinities that cause trouble. Yeah. Um, so not a surprise that Lilith is in charge of taking care of them. And finally, Lilith, um, the seductress and the succubi. Yeah. So as Lilith wanders the world, one of the things that is her job is to seduce men and punish men. Um, and the one way she seduces men as succubi is while they're sleeping. So this actually, this story around Lilith comes up because there were a variety of um taboos around masturbation um, and men within both in, within Judaism and also within Christian monks and other um, it's a sin to spill your seed uh, according to the book of Genesis uh, without procreation so whether you're masturbating or whether you're having an, a, a wet dream at night um, not to get too graphic we call these nocturnal emissions um, you're the fear is that, am I sinning? And so the story of Lilith then is grown out of this idea that, no, no, of course you're not sinning. Of course not. It's not you, you know, you're sleeping, but at night, this demoness, the seductress shows up and uses your body to steal your seed. Okay. And so men were often, which is a little funny, men were often told not to sleep alone. Because if you sleep alone, you are more likely <laughs> to have these nocturnal emissions. Of course, if you sleep alone, you're also more likely to entertain yourself using your own body. Yeah. Uh, so here is a little quote about Lilith the Succuba, a little story. Yeah. How she goes around seducing men and killing children. So Lilith goes and roams at night all about the world and makes sport with men and causes them to emit seed. In every place where a man sleeps alone in a house, she visits him and grabs him and attaches herself to him and has her desire from him and bears from him. She also afflicts him with sickness and he knows it not. And all this takes place when the moon is on the wane, when at nighttime, yeah? Sponta spontaneous nocturnal emission is a visible sign of Lilith having succeeded in arising the desire, arousing the desire of a man in his sleep and of having satisfied her own lust through him. The issue of such union, so the results of such union, are evil spirits. Yeah, For Lilith forsakes the husband of her youth, Samael, right? She leaves him and descends to earth and fornicates with men who sleep here below in the uncleanliness of emission. And from them are born demons, spirits, and Lilin, and they are called the plagues of mankind. Yeah. And in order to attract, if that's not bad enough, in order to attract and seduce men, she takes the shape of a, of a beautiful woman or a virgin. Okay. And, you know, not to stress too much that you're asleep, you must be careful that Lilith doesn't always also seduce you when you're awake. So again, this idea that beautiful women, while you're awake and walking around and doing your business, beautiful women also kill. 
him. So there's a story about how Lilith ordains herself with many ornaments, like a despicable harlot, and takes up her position at the crossroads to seduce the sons of men. Okay. And when a fool approaches her, she grabs him and kisses him and pours him wine of dregs of viper's gal. So poisonous wine. And as soon as he drinks it, uh, he goes astray after her. So men were very easily seduced by Lilith just based on her appearance alone. And one of the side notes that I'd like to point out here is that aside from all of her ornaments and um, beautiful clothing and beautiful jewelry, one thing that Lilith had that you could recognize her right away, right away is red hair. <laughs> and <laughs> to all my besties who have red hair, uh, they may have a little bit of Lilith in them, uh, but there was always this association I mean, later on as well, even under Christianity and especially during the witch hunts of Europe between red hair and uh, some kind of evil or um, witchcraft or demonic aspect. So there is always something um, suspicious about red hair people. Um, and I wonder if that um, can be retraced back to the flames. You know, the idea of fire because you know redheads are fiery but the idea that fire is um a source of the divine and so if you have red hair you're closer to the divine but in the case of course of patriarchy and when men are in control of these systems then that makes you more powerful and, and therefore more uh, dangerous so um you have to really imagine a world in which Men feared this goddess so much that they dreaded seeing her in their sleep and while they were awake. And in fact, they feared beautiful, seductive women so much that they created a plethora of um, legends around how easily they could be seduced. And of course, that means that they can't be held accountable that they don't have any responsibility, neither for nocturnal emo em emissions, and of course, neither for having sex with beautiful women, because of course they were seduced; they were they couldn't help themselves. Um, and and I think we can easily see how that becomes long term problematic um, for this idea that men can help themselves and, and the blame of women. So you can see all of these aspects traced back. Um, as far as 4,000 years. And so that brings me then to modernity. Um, and because for a long time, let's say for about a thousand years, uh, five to 800 years, uh, the myth of Lilith and Succubi was something that was sort of told in small corners. Um, it became lost a bit. Um, it became dormant. Maybe that's a better word, became dormant. And then came back uh, with a vengeance, with the feminist movement. Um, feminists found Lilith's myth and they, they accepted her. They um, welcomed her mythology. They embodied her mythology um, for independence or in favor of rebelliousness or radicalness. Um, and so she becomes a very significant symbol with second wave, second wave feminism, which is sort of 1970s, 1980s. And then by 1996, we have the Lilith Fair. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard of the Lilith Fair or ever been to the Lilith Fair. I did not, even though I was around in 1996 when Sarah McLaughlin uh, created the Lilith Fair. I really wish I had. I thought that it was going to be a, um, a festival that was going to happen every year forever, you know, like Coachella. Um, and it didn't. Um, but in 1996, Sarah McLaughlin, who's a Canadian musician, was really frustrated with the stage time that women musicians were getting um, in other summer concerts, you know, like Coachella and like other summer concerts. And um, so she decided, you know what, I'm just going to do my own uh, concert, summer concert that will be for women by women. So it was all women performers and it was all women um, that attended. And it was such a beautiful, beautiful, safe space for women to celebrate women um, 
I just, I really wish that I would have made it <laughs> to be a part of that, you know, but in 1996, I was young and silly and I was like, yeah, you know, women empowerment. Yeah, I have that. Um, so I really didn't realize the importance of continually supporting that so that we, you know, we could have that for later and also future generations of women would have that. Um, so she did the Lilith Fair for nine, for about two years until 1999. Uh, and then she, you know, she was tired and said, if anyone else wants to take over, um, they can, um, and they can take the Lilith fair over, but no one did. Um, and then in 2010, there was an attempt at a revival, but, um, it didn't, it didn't pan out too well. Wasn't maybe quite as well promoted or again, maybe it was just a generational thing where a lot of young women felt like, eh, I don't know if I want to go to an all female concert. Um, I'm not sure, but whatever it was in 2010, it did not do too, too well, although it was uh, quite popular. So they never did it again. Um, and I bring it up because they, Sarah McLaughlin named it the Lilith Fair based on the mythology of Lilith and based on that, using that mythology of Lilith to empower women and to give it that tone of rebelliousness and radicalness and women for women and, you know, uh, no men allowed kind of idea. So it was really great um, in that way. Um, and I think the experience from those who attended um, was really, really great. So hopefully maybe someone else will come up with this idea or um, this kind of uh, summer concert or event uh, where women can enjoy concerts uh, safely um, and together. And lastly, um, then that brings me into what I promised you at the beginning of our podcast, uh, which is the depiction of Lilith in popular culture. So, you know, I have a few examples that come to mind. Um, uh, I'm the kind of person where whenever I see a figure, a historical figure in film or in popular culture, it drives me nuts when they are not accurately portrayed um, or not even close to accurately portrayed. So you probably don't want to watch TV shows or movies with me because I'll be like, that's not the way it happens. What is this? Ha what is this thing? Um, why isn't this accurate? It only takes five minutes to look this up, you know, um, as my family well knows when we go to movies or, or watch any kind of show that has um, has these figures in them. And often they do, because that's also the kinds of shows I like to watch. So the, the, the few that come to mind, of course, uh, some of my favorites um, are Supernatural. Uh, so in Supernatural, Lilith plays, again, this evil role. So she starts off as a little girl and then grows into this evil being. And she's very one-dimensional. Um, in Sabrina, the Teenage Witch, which I love on Netflix, but I have so many problems with, um, you know, um, Lilith is a key character, but again, very much... Um, a one-dimensional evil figure. I mean, she does have moments of consideration, but they're usually self-serving. Um, and so again, she's the queen of the demons and wants to be the queen of hell and blah, blah, blah. So again, very evil, very one-dimensional. Um, and then, you know, we have her, for example, in True Blood. I don't know if you guys remember what True Blood is, but um, somewhere, I think in the end, towards episode, towards season seven or eight, Lilith shows up again, bloodied, naked, uh, you know, again, one-dimensional, demon-like. Um, and as well in Shadowhunters, uh, which was a really fun show. I don't want to say it was a great show, but it was a fun show. Um, in Shadowhunters, she shows up again. Um, again, same thing. You know, it, I mean, these are cookie-cutter cookie cutter, um characters that require zero complexity, zero. Uh, my very favorite Lilith, and the first time that I ever really thought, yes, this is Lilith, is in Frasier. Uh, you know, if you've ever watched Frasier, Frasier's first wife, her name is Lilith, um, and she's cold, uh, <laughs> uh, pale, um, in, very independent, very highly educated, very snobby, uh, but she's a mother, she, you know, she, they have us, they share a son. And I think that, and she's sometimes as throughout the show, you know, if you watch the whole show, she 
she has moments of warmth and caring, particularly about her child, but even about Frazier and his family. And I think that's part sometimes that she's really funny and cruel sometimes and definitely radical and independent. So I think that's probably the closest human incarnation I've ever seen to the way I imagine Lilith would be in real life. Um, is is the Lilith of Fraser? All of the other Liliths are just so, like I said, cookie cutter, non-imaginative. This there's this assumption of demoness, so therefore she's bloody and but beautiful, you know, this kind of thing, seductive. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that, but I think it's when when that becomes the only aspect of this character, I think that's when I have the problem. Um, because there's no, there's, there's so much lost in what Lilith really means for women, which is self-empowerment. It's okay to be angry. It's okay to say no. Um, it's okay to be on your own. Um, if you get thrown out by some dude from a garden, (laughs) it's okay to you know, build your own space and, and grow your own army. And, you know, so there's a lot of, I think, positive messages for women in Lilith um, that of course are beaten down or stamped out uh, by the patriarchal structure in which we all live. Um, And I think that's part, that's in part why I like to talk about her and I like to tell my students about her um, and sort of keep her memory alive in, in the all embodiment of the complex being that she is, you know, the, the divinity or spiritual embodiment of radicalness that she is, because that's what she is, right? She's a radical woman in a time when supposedly women weren't radical. Uh, I think we've always been radical, but um, that is constantly being uh, pushed away or shoved into shame or some kind of evil aspect. Um, so in popular culture, she continues to be in the imagination of men in particular. She continues to scare men, <laughs> uh, also seduce them. So, uh, you know, I'd like to do some podcasts on monsters, on women monsters like Medusa and other figures that are also very similar in nature in the sense that women, men like to conquer the kinds of women that don't want them, if that makes sense. Um they want to control what they don't understand or what doesn't need them in their lives. Um, And so these female figures that we so-called monsters or seductresses, or in this case, succubi, become symbols of male control over um, female liberties, to be honest. I don't want to sound too like military feminist, but I mean, I am, so I guess I will. Uh, but I, you know, I, I just want to make it clear, like what is happening, particularly around goddess culture. Um, and a lot of that has been buried or dismissed as sort of, uh, eh, you know, organic women's issues, things, um, and people don't take them or don't celebrate them in the way that they should be. Uh, so that led me to this goddess project. So that's it for today, guys. Um, I hope that you've enjoyed yourself. I hope that I haven't said um, too many times. <laughs> and um, I, oh, see, there I go again. Such is life. Uh, but I do hope that um, you will uh, come back and listen to uh, future podcasts. Uh, there will be a variety of topics around goddesses and women and ritual um, sometimes bloody, sometimes sexy, sometimes all of those things, uh, put together. Um, if you want to become a member of my Patreon account, uh, and get exclusive, um, uh, episodes that I will be posting up there. And also my favorite thing, which is a question and answer. So if you have questions about this podcast, um, come to my Patreon account, there's a link in the bio and, uh, join the account. And what I will do is um, I will have a special podcast with your questions about uh, whatever topic we are covering or whatever topic uh, you have questions about where I will give you the answers um, and maybe discuss a little more in depth 
um, some of the things that you find interesting or that you want to know more about. So if you feel like it, uh, there's a link everywhere. Um, and for those of you on YouTube, there's a link right here. Um, so um, I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. Um, I hope it's the first of many. I'm excited. I'm, we're already working on my uh, next podcast, podcast voila, which will be uh, Demeter and Persephone and some of the ways that I think people don't know about them. Uh, some of the things that people don't know about them or their mythology um, and the relationships of mothers and daughters in the ancient world. Um, so I think that that will be super exciting. Um, I've got my notes in place. Uh, so I hope that you've enjoyed Lilith. And uh, if you ever see her again in a TV show or if you see her anywhere that you find in interesting, uh, feel free to shoot me a, a comment or send something my way and all the social media aspects that I have for this podcast. Um, and I will bring that up uh, on our question and answers podcast. All right. Have a great day. Thank you for joining me. And I wish you all the best and have a great weekend. Bye all.